Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast, coming to you as always from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, we've uh, we've talked a lot, and and we've talked a lot on this show. And if you if you attend any events these days. You know, there's, there's this kind of common theme that goes on in the industry, um, and it, it goes a little bit like this. Um, hey, you know, there are, some, uh, there are some innovative, disruptive companies out there, uh, you know, whether it's Netflix or Airbnb or Uber or, you know, pick your favorite sort of unicorn startup company. They are disrupting your industry. You are in big trouble. And if you don't move to becoming a, a completely software-based company that is building everything in microservices and the newest, coolest technology, well, you know, you might as well dig a grave for your company and update your resume because you're going out of business very quickly. And it's a, it's a fun sort of meme to follow if you're watching a keynote and it leaves a lot of the audience going, uh, what do I going to do? Like, that doesn't seem like a great future for me. And so, you know, we talk to a lot of people, we get a chance to talk to a lot of people and we go, is that reality? You know, what, what, what is available for people and, and how are people moving forward, you know, in this sort of natural progression? And so we're very lucky tonight. Uh, Aaron and I get a chance to see a lot of events and we get a, a chance to, to, you know, see a lot of talks. And we, one of them really caught our eye lately. Uh, so we're very, very lucky tonight to have Lachlan Evenson, who uh, is Senior Solutions Architects for Deus and previously was with Lithium Technologies. Lachlan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to share you know, our journey to microservices and really uh, give our experiences and dig into what we learned um, at my two and a half years at, at Lithium Technologies. Yeah. So I was... Yeah. So let me, let me tee this up a little bit. So we, we, you caught our eye, you, you did a talk um, and we'll, as always, we'll post it in the show notes that was sort of called microservices memoirs. And it, you did a fabulous job of sort of walking through your experience. So first up, tee us up, you know, your background and and what helped you you know give this talk where did where did you get all the experience that, that's in here absolutely so I was uh, a cloud platform team lead at Te- lithium technologies and I spent two and a half years there and I came on board at a time where lithium was starting their cloud journey so they traditionally had uh, on-premise data centers yep. and really the move was to get into uh, private and public cloud so I came on board to help build the tooling, the platform, and the infrastructure around that cloud journey at Lithium Technologies. I've now kind of moved on from Lithium, and I'm at Deus. And really what I'm trying to do there is is accelerate this journey for other people. So bringing those learnings of the two and a half years I was at Lithium uh, to the wider market and and really shortcut people's journeys. So, you know, that's that's really what inspired me um, with the Deus team is that they're after that journey. Yeah. So, so before we dive into the, the Lithium experience, just for anybody who doesn't know, what, what, who is Deus and what do they do? So uh, Deus, uh, at Deus, we are really just accelerating the cloud-native application acceleration. So getting people onto cloud-native frameworks. So if you take a look at things like the Cloud-Native Compute Foundation, and really what they're on about is, is, is building cloud-native systems. So container-packaged, dynamically managed, and microservice-oriented So what we're doing at Deus is building tooling around uh, enabling that cloud-native application journey. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So you you came on board a couple of years ago, uh, two and a half, three years ago at Lithium. What was was the charter? What were they wanting you to do? You know, you said I was there to help them build a cloud, but what did that mean at the time? So what it meant was 
so we had uh, traditional data centers. What we wanted to do was, uh, you know, resourceify our internal infrastructure. So at the call of an API, we could pool our resources and provision VMs, uh, containers, or, or those kind of resources on-prem. But we also wanted to augment our footprint with public cloud as well because we saw uh, tremendous value in, in moving some of our services to the public cloud, uh, whether it be for uh, geographical regions or spinning something up in a region we don't have that footprint. So we really came in and, and the cloud platform was to build an offering in public and private cloud. So our public cloud was made up of, of AWS at that point and OpenStack on the private side. So really, you know, the tooling around that. Now, when we actually dug in and started building um, the infrastructure, what we found was, you know, there was a whole new virtualization journey that we had to undertake. So we didn't have any of the tooling or the automation around actually deploying workloads um, in a way that made sense to the cloud. So it was coming in, changing that whole infrastructure uh, and, and making it kind of cloud-centric. So that was the, what our overall charter was. Yeah, and, and I, I know in the talk, uh, you called that sort of cloud version one. Um, and then, uh, you know, as, as, you, as you move through, you know, your discussion, you kind of get into this idea that, you know, maybe that didn't, uh, it, it, it sort of solved a bunch of technical problems, but maybe it didn't solve kind of your ultimate customer, you know, demand or, or interaction. Talk about, you know, how you guys went from some realizations about that, that OpenStack AWS cloud to, what you sort of realized as you put it in the hands of your, of your end users and developers. So I think if you look back, rewind two years ago at how people were building clouds and cloud platforms, uh, it was very IaaS-centric. So you were tying together all these disparate resources into creating a story, right? So you were inadvertently creating a PaaS and a PaaS of your own opinions of what you define as good and a good way to deploy applications. Uh, but you were using tooling that was probably born out of the operations journey, right? So you had an org structure and you had the engineering arm, the developers writing the code, and you had an operations arm, and those guys were responsible for maintaining the production lifecycle of the application, updates, upgrades, maintaining the system and the infrastructure. Now, when you go to the cloud, kind of the lines get blurred. And to talk about microservices in a vacuum, I think uh, doesn't provide much context. When you think about microservices as a part of uh, this larger journey to uh, other cultural and technical changes like uh, no-ops, DevOps, uh, you know, cloud, automation, when you think of it as this whole uh, large big bang of all these pieces that are changing independently, it was, it was hard to find our way in that journey. Um, and I think you know, if I was to kind of sum up at the end of Cloud V1 was we'd actually made it more difficult for our customers being the internal developers to deliver their applications, which wasn't what we'd promised. And if we were to dig into really what, where we fell down there, I think, uh, you know, we approached the problem operationally. So we took a bunch of operational tools and tried to apply them uh, to, you know, a development app dev situation, and it was kind of clunky. So we were asking developers to do things they hadn't traditionally done that were taking care of operational teams. Uh, Give us some examples. Yeah. What, what might that be? So I think uh, one, one example on the front end. So we're asking people uh, on the d development side, rather than uh, packaging up their code or just being responsible for delivering the feature and the, the source code, we're asking them actually to package up uh, the, you know, the metadata around the code that, so that we could operationally deploy it rather than making it 
fairly lightweight and a task that had traditionally been done by the operational team, right? They would take the source code in, wrap it in the lifecycle management suite that they'd had, and then deploy it. We were asking the developers to wrap that up and not giving them much direction on how to do it. Gotcha. So, so you were maybe, for example, saying, hey, you have to be aware of, of like load balancers and scaling groups and uh, you know, storage I.O. And, and those sort of things that... Like you know, it's like you mentioned, you know, probably would have been an, would have been an operations or a, an infrastructure type of, of function. Yeah, yeah, that was exactly it. So asking them to, you know, topics that had traditionally been SMEs, so you'd have subject matter experts in house on your networking, your storage, uh, your compute, and all around load balancing. You'd kind of throwing that over the fence in essence to the developers and ask them to kind of take care of it. Yep. Um, I think one of the other uh, things that we, you know, we could have done better was. We kind of went into a waterfall model where we went into a hole for six months and kind of came back and went, da-da, you know, here it is. You guys start using it. And these guys, you know, these guys being the developers, the end users, was this isn't what we wanted. You haven't actually met our needs. So I think, you know, pairing it up with things like Agile and running it more like a feature and app dev team, so that being your cloud platform team, I think it, it, it having that organization to actually support you to be successful, it matters. Right. So I think what I'm sort of hearing what you, what you're saying is, you know, your, your, your goal, uh, you know, probably, you know, was, was ultimately, um, you know, try and try and make developers more productive, get their applications into, into, uh, into production faster, um, you know, make them more agile. And, and what ended up happening was, you know, you, you had this goal, but the, the approach that you took with it was, was very much, kind of you know not exactly but sort of modeled on the same idea that that people are now saying well you shouldn't build software that way so you shouldn't you know start from scratch have a thousand features to build out wait until it's completely done and then like you said just kind of throw it on people you know 6 12 18 months later and go isn't this what you wanted right there you need to think about your infrastructure platform as being sort of iterative in the same way that you're expecting your your application sort of life cycle to, to evolve. Yeah, that's what we found to be, you know, true, is we need to run this and think about it like ap- application developers rather than thinking about it operationally where you lay something down and then it just starts to collect dust. You want to iterate. You want to have a model where you can iterate, change pieces, um, come up with new features and deliver them on demand. Um, and, you know, it's it kind of... On the operations side, you've come out of this world where everything is kind of in your control, uh, but relinquishing some of that control and actually having external forces uh, push your feature roadmap, I think is, is something that uh, was interesting for us to learn, right? So say, what would you guys like rather than this is what you're going to get? Right. So actually having them on the journey and saying, guys, we are here to meet your needs, which is essentially the remit of the, the cloud platform team was to actually deliver a platform that is going to make the developer's life easier. And really the business value from that was getting features out faster, the time to market, the time to value, all these kind of good things could be boiled up and delivered to to management as a reason for investing in the cloud in the first place. Yep, yep. So, uh, you know, as, as, you, as you sort of moved along this, this talk that you've been giving, this experience that you've been sharing, um, you talk about the idea that, you know, you sort of had to go back to the drawing board. Uh, you had to, you know, come up with this idea of, of a V2 type of, of cloud platform. What was, uh, you know, let, let, let's talk about this sort of in two parts. One is what was the platform thinking that was going on? And then, and then second, 
you know, we haven't talked at all about the types of applications you're dealing with. You know, you guys are Silicon Valley company. I mean, are you dealing with, with all microservices or, you know, I mean, was there, was there stuff there from before that you had to figure out how to deal with? Yeah, so the Cloud V2 initiative, I think it was probably more of a, of a cultural undertaking or understanding how to deal with our customers. Okay. Uh, so rather than looking at it technically, which is what we've done in the past, we started mm-hmm. to look at how do we actually meet the needs of the customers and what are we going to do to actually make them happy. So really going external facing, right? So really we wanted to stay in that, you know, what business problem are we trying to solve? So is it getting code out faster? Is it getting better quality? Is it, what is the KPI around what you're delivering with this, you know, uh, cloud platform slash microservice architecture that you're going to? So we'd made a decision internally that um, on the engineering side, uh, we were going to level off, you know, the code commits that were going into the, the old monolithic platform that made up some of the lithium services Mm -hmm. and really break that out so people could iterate within smaller teams on smaller code bases and you know it's like uh, lessening the blast radius as you make changes so what we needed was to build you know a framework to support that those microservices but really as i said we wanted to run it run it like a feature team we wanted incremental revolution so we wanted to get the first feature out the door uh, you know, we called it the MVP internally. Yep. But as we looked at what we were going to try and do, we said to ourselves, we're not going to go pick up everything that we've done and try and shove it into microservices. What we're going to do is leave everything as it is and let's enable new teams from the get-go and let's see how that goes. So we had um, some ambassador teams that we actually went in. We knew they had a feature to write that could be stood up as a microservice and we actually got them through that that whole journey of uh, getting out their first microservice. And then we kind of took, uh, did a retrospect and said what worked, what didn't, and changed the way we were actually interacting and changed the tooling to meet, you know, the problems that we identified. Yeah. So there, there's a couple of, of interesting nuances in there that I kind of want to unpack. Uh, you know, the first thing that I heard was, you know, you you sort of started treating uh, what you delivered um, as if you were like a like a product team, right? You thought of it as a as a product that you, you know, would take to market where your customers happen to be internal developers. But, you know, and the reason I, the reason I say that is a lot, of, a lot of people say, well, you know, internally, we want to act like a service provider to our customers. And while that analogy kind of works, I would, so I would almost argue that, you know, most people would sort of say, well, you know, service providers in general are very good at kind of stable things, whether you're talking about the telephone company or the cable company or a wireless provider, but they're not necessarily the most uh, innovative, the most responsive to, to end customers. But but if you think about it as a product, then you've got to sort of know the market. You've got to have a direct way to talk to the market. Um, so th- that was an interesting thing th- that I heard you say. And the other one was, you, you know, you, you said this thing about ambassadors. Talk a little bit about what that was, because you had some interesting stories about how you made your customers essentially, you know, your internal developers ambassadors for the service they were using. Okay, yeah. So if you take a look at your kind of first point in there was, uh, you know, being a a service provider, but then starting to think more like an app dev or or a feature or product team. I think one thing that was interesting when we went to thinking like a product team was, it was, it was, we were accountable for what we were delivering. We weren't throwing things over the fence and we, we cared what people thought. Yep. And we were in direct competition with the market. So a developer could Google something and figure out some way to actually get his app out 
on a cloud platform just as easily as you could use ours. So we knew that we had to make ours easier and and give the developer more of what they needed out of the box. You know, so features like logging and monitoring, uh, if you expose this API endpoint, we'll give you a monitoring dashboard out of the box. Your logs will be collected out of the box. So as a developer, you don't need to do anything. So if you make it the path of least resistance in your platform, there's no way that people won't use it if it's giving them all the knobs that they need. Now, this is kind of twofold. When we get a call or get a page uh, at three in the morning, right, we know what we're supporting because all the apps are deployed the same way. So we can actually dig into it and, and problem solve rather than each app being deployed differently. Yep. So that, you know, that kind of is the first part of the question. So the ambassador model, I was a, a big believer of I can't go and stand up in front of people and kind of shove this idea down their throats, right? I want them to say that it's the best way for them to do, you know, do what they need to do. And I want them to get up on stage and say it. It's, it's one thing coming from the cloud platform team. Of course, we're going to be trying to sell what we're producing. Sure. But for those guys actually to get up and say, look, this has made my life easier. I've been able to move between teams or features. I've been able to get code out in uh, minutes rather than months. We've got our code coverage up. It's better quality. We're delivering better software for the business that really speaks to the developers, right, rather than me going up and saying all these things are great. Having real use cases, and I think this stands for anything in the market, any conference you go to, somebody saying up and saying, getting up and saying, we are solving business problems with these tools is always much more compelling than a vendor telling you that you can solve problems with this. Right, right. Um, so... Yeah, and, and you, you, you sort of told a story in there um, where you were, you know, you were getting into trying to decide, you know, do I keep an existing application or a monolith or do I try and, you know, break it into parts and do microservices? Um, share with people the story about how you kind of, you know, allowed developers to sort of realize that, that like containerizing some of these applications, even as is, was, was going to be a good thing, but, they, but kind of they, they came to it on their own, you know, reg- recognition, if you will. Yeah, so the container the container journey was was kind of interesting. So it was kind of a social experiment internally. So as the cloud platform team, we'd already gone and taken a look at the market, and this was uh, circa May 2015. So mm-hmm. at that point, we'd actually made a decision that we wanted to invest in, in Kubernetes as our container orchestration framework. And the reason that decision was driven um, that early was we knew if we didn't get in front of this problem, we'd be behind it. And by that, I mean developers would want this this great container experience that they know and, and have started working with. Um, and if we didn't give them a compelling reason to use our container orchestration, which we could uh, give them a better experience overall and manage the change internally, um, we knew that we'd be running to catch up with them. So I, I was heading out on paternity leave uh, around May last year and I gave two of these ambassadors who had two, there were two feature teams. I gave one guy on the team and just said, look, here's how you create a Docker file. Welcome to Docker. Here's the, the three, three things you need to know about Docker. And I said, here's, I've stood up a repo internally. You can start checking in your containers into this image repo. So I went off uh, on paternity leave. I came back two weeks later and literally my desk was covered in post-its and people are just saying, when can we go to prod? <laughs> I'd never had that experience before with any other tooling I've written. It was kind of always like the doldrums. Please be trained on this way of doing business and you need to write this if you want it to be deployed. It was kind of these guys were coming and saying, this is easier for us. We get this. You know, the command we would type into the terminal to run our code, 
We're just putting that in a Docker file. That speaks to us. And really, this has been the foundation of, you know, the great UX that Docker has created, right? So as a user, you can come along and with very little overhead, you can see the value prop straight away. Yep. So we, you know, that was a telltale sign to me that, hey, can, we're onto something with containers. People like working with them, which is half the battle of getting somebody onto any platform. If we can just wrap this in a way that's sane and, uh, you know, provides all those nuances you want in a production system, we might be onto something here. So I actually came back um, for paternity leave. We got the team to rally around getting these things productionized. And uh, we did a demo at uh, OpenStack Summit in Tokyo where I showed the complete lifecycle of us deploying from a Git commit out onto AWS and OpenStack, you know, a single artifact and actually doing a rolling update of that whole UX. So to be able to model and have that UX move from, hey, it works on my laptop to it works in production the same way as it works on my laptop, you know, that was a, a, a something that was very compelling for the developers and for the cloud platform team alike. Right, right. And, and, and we'll, we'll include the link to that, uh, that, that, that talk as well. It's a very interesting, uh, you know, how to run OpenStack as, as sort of an application on top of Kubernetes, um, which kind of blows people's minds sometimes because they think about like, <laughs> wait a second, infrastructure on top of infrastructure sounds weird. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good talk. It's a good explanation of sort of how do you think about these, these moving software-defined infrastructures. Um, let's talk a little bit. I mean, you know, the, the talk that you give is, is sort of called, you know, microservices memoirs, but you, you, you dig in a little bit to, you know, you have some monolithic applications and, you know, how did you, how did you treat them? I mean, was it, you know, I have to sort of follow the Adrian Cockroft, break them all up into microservices, otherwise I'll perish? Or how did, how did you guys deal with that? And, and more so, like, how did you reconcile you know, potentially a monolith with something like Kubernetes, which people tend to associate just with, you know, containers. So what we did was go straight after, you know, the new use cases. So we knew that the whole container experience for the company was rested on, you know, how well the first few worked out. So we need to make the first few teams very successful and, you know, have those guys lift up because it could have just as easily gone completely the other way and we would have withdrawn and said, you know, this isn't for us. So we knew that we needed to provide that really uh, compelling experience that um, people would want to get on board. But when it came to looking at the monolith and whether it made sense to broke it up, I think, you know, one of the acid tests for us is, you know, you've got to keep the lights on and keep the business running. Why would you put uh, elements that are making money for your business at risk immediately? And I think that's just setting you up uh you know, to have a bad experience with containers. So we were very pragmatic and said, you know what, we'll leave the monolith there. We called it the, the controlled tire fire internally. <laughs> you know, it's a known, it's a known entity yep. and we've built a lot of tooling and there's, you know, however many years understanding how to wrangle that beast in production. And it's, it's a known entity, right? It made no sense to break that up immediately. Um, and I'm not sure that it ever does. I, you can, you could, you could com- you could change my mind either way, and it would depend on the um, you know the use case. The other thing that we didn't go and touch is our system of record. So you know when you go out and take a look at running databases on Kubernetes, you know there's there's some great content out there, and I have no doubt that it will work. But really, what we wanted to do is is something we tagged to stay in the success zone, and that really was where is the market external to lithium. Mm-hmm. 
And where is the technology in that market? And let's just stay to what that technology is delivering today. So if you rewind a year, uh, you know, uh, persistent storage in, in containers was a little bit more of a problem than it is now. Right. Uh, pers- networkings was an, another challenge. Uh, firewalls, which, you know, rolled into compliance and all those kind of things. So really we just said, look, we know what we have to deal with there. There's no point in lifting and shifting that. Let's, uh, you know, have these applications born in the cloud. And I think that's really key to your microservice or cloud native journey is if you have applications born under the duress of, you know, whatever running in the cloud is, people are writing them to understand, uh, you know, the nuances of that kind of infrastructure platform. So if you can start from scratch and you have that luxury, I think you'll be uh, more successful in the early days. Um, it's not to say that you can't forklift things in. I'm, I certainly you can, but I think you should ask yourself, really, what does it mean if this thing goes wrong? Right, right. So, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're pointing out a very important thing, which is, you know, this isn't always strictly a technology conversation because, you know, if you, if you just look at, uh, an application and, and the state of technology today, um, you know, like you said, a year ago, you know, persistence, persistent storage, you know, sort of stateful applications, not really the sweet spot for Kubernetes, you know, and, and containers that's, that's all evolved this last year. But for you guys at the time you were making that decision, it wasn't the right political decision. It doesn't sound like it wasn't the right organizational decision for, you know, saying, Hey, is this going to be successful and allow us to do more of this? Or does this, you know, a huge risk that, that might, you know, kill off any momentum we have. And you, and you kind of have to balance both those things and, and hopefully make the right decisions on both those, those fronts. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting because the only real bet that we were taking, if you would appeal it all back was the bet on containers, Yeah. right? If we had that primitive, it didn't matter what we did in orchestration or the tooling around it, we could move and pivot. So being incremental, we could actually make a decision. Was the platform doing what we we needed it to do and we knew that you know containers were here to stay so that was actually probably the only thing that we had to put you know chips on the table for was this primitive is here to stay in containers and you know that was really all we were investing in at the time and if you wanted to fail fast and be incremental at any point we could have uh, changed direction fairly quickly knowing that the primitive the container would still be runnable yeah, and it's interesting. In, in in you, you know, as as you describe this, um, you know, you start talking about you know where you want to be opinionated in your in your platform. And I thought it was interesting. A lot of the conversations that happen in the market, people tend to talk about you know the platform being highly opinionated. So uh, you know, like for example, the Cloud Foundry Foundation, and they tend to say, "Look, we are a highly opinionated platform," meaning you know we we dictate a lot of the choices that you're going to be allowed. And and for for certain things that works out very, very well. Um, you know, I've often used, uh, you know, a year ago I was using the terminology, they're sort of, you know, um, structured and unstructured platforms or, uh, you know, composable, but you talk about being opinionated kind of before you get the application into the platform. Talk about why you sort of use that terminology and, and what you mean by, you know, being opinionated for, for certain tasks and, and doing those really well. I think it comes back to our learnings out of Cloud V1 and Cloud V2. So what we did was with Cloud V1 was we tried to be an inch deep and a mile wide like an oil slick. Mm-hmm. So we tried to do everything for everyone. <laughs> yeah. And and we did none of it 
well, right? It was a jack of all trades, master of none. So come and see us and we'll be able to bring your own application, bring your own, uh, you know, design, bring your own stack and we'll somehow tie it together and make it work. And what we found was we delivered no value from something that wasn't opinionated. So when we went to V2, we said, let's look at the 99%. Right? What are 99% of the apps that people were developing internally? And that really came down to, you know, what language are they developed against? What are the typical infrastructure asks? You know, do they sit behind a load balancer? Do they need one or more? Are they stateful? Are they stateless? And we, we actually found that we could address 99%, right? And if you were to use another term for opinionated, I think it's just delivering features. So if you were to map opinionated with features, and think about it as a, a product that has a feature roadmap, you could ask people for what features they'd want and bring them in and make it driven by the customers rather than us on the cloud platform team coming up with what we think you want, which may or may not be true. So actually having it in, in lockstep with the developers and, and the people using the platform was incredibly valuable for us to, you know, that was the opinion. Yeah. To go so, out and say, you guys are doing this, this team's doing this. Hey, you know what? They look the same. Let's just create this. And I think in most cases, probably you could go after at least 90% or up and follow the same pattern. Yeah. And, you know, things like Kubernetes have kind of that app dev interface so they get what an application looks like. Mm-hmm. So they give you load balances and storage and networking. So they're kind of easy to work with to meet that 99% of what we were looking at. So Gotcha. So so you're talking so when you when you talk about opinionated it's I mean there is a technology component but it's really it's less technology centric and it's more about delivering a consistent experience and and hopefully one that you know at least matches the 80/20 rule and and if it matches more than that, you know, even better. Yeah, and and that was, you know, if if it didn't meet the the 80% We'd call it off the reservation, and we could we could actually work with teams to get their their application out. But if it didn't fit, we didn't try to make it fit. And we also called out, you know, you're not a good candidate to come on for this platform. So we were fairly, you know, cut and dry. If people were coming to us with this requirement of I need, a, you know, a stateful layer and this, it's not there today. We're not going to advise that you do this, mm-hmm. and um, you know, come back and see us. So we'll let you know when we're in a state to actually handle that. So I think that was incredibly valuable to make us successful in that space was, uh, you know, only taking on cases that we were going to be successful with. And that was really what the opinion meant, was us saying, you fit the use case of what we're building with this platform. Um, and I know that I can make you successful. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. I, I want to be conscious of our time here. I want to ask you sort of one, one last question. And again, thank you so much for kind of walking us through this journey. I, I think there's a, there's a ton of things that people can learn from. Um, you know, you guys were obviously uh, an early adopter of Kubernetes and, and, and you know, I mean, it's a year, it's a little over a year old now. Obviously, you were playing with containers for a little bit longer than that. What's, what's your take on just the state of of the Kubernetes community and, and, you know, the market of people that are uh, trying to use Kubernetes to, to solve these problems, whether they're cloud native or just, you know, building better platforms. So, yeah, we, we, I actually spoke at the Kubernetes V1 launch at OzCon in Portland and I was up on stage there and I, I think I said, Kubernetes gives us exactly what we need at V1. So anything post V1 has been, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, the cream, cream on the cake. It's been uh, additive to our experience. So just looking at what we've achieved as in a year 
as part of that Kubernetes platform. It's, it's been amazing to see that community grow, uh, really get some steam behind it and really solving some, some really unique use cases and, and making it very compelling to be on that platform. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, one of the promises that we were really excited about with, with Kubernetes was that we could run it on, on multiple uh, clouds. Right. And have a single experience, and really that promise spoke to us because we knew that if we bet on on that API, that Kubernetes API, that things would come to follow. So, you know, as we're at one dot three now, going to one dot four, things like federation and federated clusters are coming up, which is really exciting um, to me. We're looking at persistence; those things are being solved. So, a lot of those problems that I said weren't in the success zone, I could kind of move the needle internally now and say, look, these problems are solved. You know the networking stuff's largely solved. The um, you know the the storage stuff is is largely solved, or at least on the way. Um, so this is something that you can actually bank on moving forward. Yep. But what I'm seeing is is people are taking Kubernetes and making it their own, and I think that's fantastic. You know, with the inclusion of things like third party resources, people are able to build against this API and leave their own thumbprint on Kubernetes. Right. So, you know, I think that speaks to the platform um, and the way that it's been written. So I'm seeing some great use cases. I saw some uh, something that Kelsey dropped about uh, Cert Manager for Kubernetes, which was fantastic. I see some interesting things over with Vault, so people integrating secrets management. And if you go and look at how they're doing this, it's very lightweight if you dig into how they're doing it. So it's it's really cool that people can take Kubernetes and make it their own and make it meet the needs of their businesses. So going into when I, you know, as a solutions architect, I get to go and talk to a lot of people who are in the market or using Kubernetes and just seeing how they're solving problems with Kubernetes or how they're thinking about it. I'm like, wow, I would never have thought of this, but you can do that with Kubernetes. So, you know, it's been really fruitful to see that, um, that community grow. And with any open source project, it's only as valuable as the community and how inclusive that is and how they're managing the project and all the elements. And, you know, it's, it's been great to be a part of it and see it grow. And I'm happy to say that, you know, I, I think it's a really great environment for not only developers but operators alike to actually solve their problems. Yep. No, that's fantastic. I, I, I agree with everything you said. I don't think I'd, I'd have much more to add. And, uh, you know, like I said before, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing with us your, your experiences and kind of, you know, a lot of the things that are, that are behind the scenes, sort of the psychology of, of, of getting people to, to buy into stuff, the, the, you know, how do you make people internally successful and want to go be, like you said, ambassadors for, for using this technology and, and ultimately hopefully making the business, you know, more productive, more successful and so forth. So, uh, Lachlan, thank you so much tonight, uh, for you and for Aaron folks, uh, great show. Uh, hope you enjoy it. Take a look at all the show notes. There's a lot of really good details, um, from these talks and, uh, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 